0: to stand stand having our our inner being our loins our our, our sten- stomach our midsection uh surrounded or girded with the belt of truth Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father except through me what is it that you need when you you are being assaulted from without you need to be reminded that Jesus' truth matters that the truth of Christ will set you free. The lies of the devil try to tell you that your life doesn't matter, that you need success in this earthly plane. You need possessions. You need a place to call your own. You need to make a name for yourself. You need recognition. But Jesus Christ tells tells us that none of us can have that except through him. And so if we could go through the armor of God and we don't have time to do that, I spent some time last week doing that. But let me re- remind you as we ask and answer this question, have you ever doubted God's provision after coming off of a landmark victory in your life? Have you ever failed the Lord after a great victory? If you have, you're in good company. All of us are there. All of us have been there. But you, you can relate to Abram then in this story. Oftentimes, the test of our faith comes after past victory in our lives. While it is true that our salvation begins as a once-for-all act of God to declare us righteousness, or righteous, that's justification, just as if I'd never sinned, right? Once we trust God by faith, there is also, though, an aspect of our salvation that displays our faith in daily sanctification, that's progressive growth in godliness, to be more and more like Jesus by actively choosing to say yes to God every single day. And that's what Abram does. Abram activates his faith in God, and he is promised a great reward. By the way, when does Abram's reward of uh, that stated at the very end, to, uh, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, when does that get rewarded? Does it happen in his lifetime? No, in fact, I would argue it has still yet to happen. Not even during the great golden age of the Israelites during the reign of Solomon did they own the land from the Nile River to the Euphrates River. That would have been them uh, owning the kingdoms of Nineveh, Assyria, uh, and Ur or Babylon. And they never ruled that. They had an alliance with the Ninevites and, or the Assyrians, the Syrians, and the Babylonians, but they didn't own it. So this is a promise that is yet to be completely fulfilled. And yet Abram looked for this this city, this builder, uh, this city whose builder and maker was the Lord. And I would argue that active faith in God does not mean that I must have what God promises now, but I must trust that what God's promised now will be fulfilled in the future. So if it's not, if this promise for us Today is not a literal possession. You know, my 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 you know my 1968 um, Mustang convertible will be sitting in my driveway, my garage, as soon as I get home today. Psych, like I don't have one of those. Wouldn't mind if somebody gave me one. If you do, it's blue, white stripes. That's the best. I'm, it would be the nicest one. White top as well. White interior, I know. It's horrible. It's hard to keep clean in Arizona, but that's the classic, the 68. Mustang Convertible Blue, White Stripes, White Top, White Interior. That's the one I'm looking for, okay? So if you find it, I'll take it. But no, it does not mean that that's what we're going to get, right? It's going to be pretty useless in heaven, by the way. (laughs) Anyway, uh, as we think of the context, it means that what we have been promised, eternal life with Jesus, is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. Active faith in God's promise will be rewarded, You say, well, I'm, I'm not married, or I can't have children. So what do you mean by progeny? Well, obviously, as we mentioned last week, we who receive Christ by faith become the sons of God, even to those who, Believe on his name, and when you propagate the truth of of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus died not just for your sins, but for the sins of whosoever will may call on the name of the Lord, then you share the hope and faith with God, and you see more spiritual children born to the kingdom of God. That is a progeny that you can have and take with you. The progeny of spiritual children that have come to faith in Christ. Now, of course, you and I don't save anybody. God is the one who saves. We understand that truth. I'm speaking from man's perspective. We get to be conduits. We get get to be channels, as it were. Remember that old hymn, channels only, blessed master, right? But with all thy hope and power, right? Uh, We are channels only. We're a conduit for God to bless others through. And so as we've looked at this, uh, this faith in God, we were reminded that faith in God's promises always lead to action from God's people. Abram was called to action. And what we find then is the second point, active faith provides imputed righteousness. So there's the word provide there. I know it's a verb. It's not a noun like the others were. But now we see active faith provides imputed righteousness in verse 6. And none of my slides are part of this show, so I apologize. You'll just have to listen well. I have a lot of content that I made slides for, uh, but you'll just have to listen well. So this is perhaps the most telling verse in the Old Testament and certainly the main point of the story. When you read the whole story, verse 6 is the main point. And, And we'll just read it again. It says in verse six, and he Abram believed in the Lord, and the word Lord there is L O R D, all caps, so it's the covenant name of God. It's Yahweh, uh, I am. It's how uh, Abram or it's how Moses was introduced to God in the burning bush. Remember, Moses is authoring this to the people of Israel during the wilderness wandering after they've been exited out of Egypt. Um, so this is the time frame telling of their past history. So he calls him by his covenant name. He says, I am the Lord. And he accounted, uh, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So active faith pro- provides imputed righteousness. Notice this is something God does. You believe God imputes. You believe God credits. You believe God gives. Are you tracking? Now, I am not going to somehow masterfully win the age-old argument of man's responsibility and God's determined will or God's sovereign election uh, and this divine responsibility today. That's not the point. I, I, I will not be able to solve that mystery. I'm a human. His thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are his ways my ways. They're far higher. I couldn't comprehend, okay? But here in the text, Abram believes God imputes. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so as we look at the context, um, this this is quoted in in three New Testament passages. Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, and James chapter 2. And so in the sense of, of faith and imputed righteousness, we become Abram's spiritual children when we act on faith in Jesus like Abram had faith in Yahweh. Okay? By the way, uh, L-O-R-D, all caps, is the verb, I am, in Hebrew, and it's, it's how uh, Moses was introduced to God. Uh, we don't exactly know uh, how it's pronounced. Um, Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, we're not sure because Hebrew is a consonantal language. Um, the language itself, every word, is three consonants. There's a few exceptions. There's a few words in it that have five consonants, but most of those were brought in from other languages. It's a triple consonantal language, and so if you look at Hebrew, you see consonants. And by the way, it's written backwards from right to left. Well, backwards from our uh, Western mind. Okay, And so as you, as you look at that, the vowels are diacritical markings that were added later. And so as we're not exactly sure how to pronounce this, this verb, I am, but it, 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 it's Yahweh, Jehovah. I, I prefer Yahweh. And I'm bringing that up because um, there is a whole subset of people that knock on your door, that call themselves Christian, um, that call themselves Yahweh or Jehovah's Witnesses, but they do not believe that Jesus and Yahweh, or Jehovah, are one and the same. And the Bible repeatedly and clearly claims Jesus and Yahweh to be identical. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses will take texts from the New Testament, and they will translate them in a way to remove any reference to an Old Testament promise that Jesus and Yahweh are the same. But there are several texts in Scripture that they miss, And this is somewhat of an obscure one in some sense, but it is definitely one they miss. In fact, um, John, they love to target John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, That statement is an anarthris. It's without an article. So uh, it says, was God. They translate it was a God. Okay? Um, There's a reason why that, that doesn't make sense, and that's not the point. The point is John writes his gospel with seven signs that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and seven sayings that prove that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And if we recall, the seven sayings that Jesus makes are the seven I am's. Now, the irony is not lost on us there. How did God introduce himself to Moses when Moses said at the burning bush, "Lord, what should I tell your people your name is?" He said, "I am." That is a translation of the verb, Yahweh. So here at, in this verse, Genesis 15:6, God says, then He says, uh, "And he believed in the I am." and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram was looking forward to I Am's satisfaction of the promised seed that would crush the serpent's head whose heel would be bruised. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. Over and over and over and over, Jesus said, I am. He was, un, he was emphatically declaring himself to be Yahweh. And any group that denies that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God, is a false gospel and a false group. You say, preacher, why are you spending time on that? Because any facade or religion that we put in place to make us righteous before God will fail. The only thing that can make us righteous before God is God himself imputing to us righteousness. Abram believes the I am, and the I am gives him righteousness. Righteousness. So the call to us today is, do you believe in the I am? Do you believe in Jesus? And thus, do you have his righteousness? Now, turn back with me to Revelation. Not Revelation. I keep doing that to myself. Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Remember, I told you there's three passages in the New Testament that discuss this. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4 is, is that God's promise to Abraham, uh, Abraham, of course, we've read him as Abram in Genesis 15, God's promise to Abraham upon which he acted in faith came before Abram was circumcised and thus before he entered into any Jewish legal covenant. Therefore, Abraham's faith displayed for us today is the same faith that we participate in when we believe God's promises and live accordingly. So in Romans chapter 4, notice what he says. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now, when did Abraham, Abram, as it were, believe God, and it was accredited to him for righteousness? In Genesis 15, 6, what's the context of Genesis 15, 6? It comes after Genesis 14. What does Abram do in Genesis 14? He goes out with a momentous faith and he attacks the enemy that had stolen Lot, his nephew, and he wins this crazy victory to the glory of God. And then he comes back in full-blown panic mode and thinks, oh, I have just sealed my fate. And God comforts him by saying, no, I am your shield. I am your reward, and guess what he does? He believes the I am, and he's imputed with righteousness. Friends, Christianity is very simple. Bible Christianity, as complex as it sounds, is very simple. Do you believe God made you in his image with incredible value? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Do you believe that God's perfect creation and perfect place Eden was intended for fellowship with a perfect God, with his perfect creation, made in his image for all eternity, but that that perfect place of fellowship was destroyed and decimated by sin? And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. But the promise of God, I will give you a seed that will crush the serpent's head. That promise of God is being fulfilled or has been fulfilled in the I am Jesus. And so when we believe God, he imputes us to us righteousness that comes from outside of us that we don't deserve. Then in chapter four of Romans again, um, Paul uses an argument about uh, David, um, and then he moves on and goes back to uh, verse 9 about circumcision and uncircumcision. I read that this morning, so look at verse 13, the promise granted through faith. For this promise that he, Abram, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Uh, Paul put it this way in to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. It, salvation, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, if we could be saved by our righteous acts, if Abram could be saved by his righteous deeds, he would brag about them. We would brag about our righteous acts. That's what Paul is saying to the Romans, but because the law brings about wrath for there is no law where there is no law, there's no transgression. So instead verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, all of Abram's seed has this promise that righteousness comes by faith in God alone, right? Uh, Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, parentheses, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed in God's presence. Remember, when was this enacted? Go back to chapter 15. This was enacted in God's presence. Who was present for this covenant promise? Abram and God. That's the argument Paul is making. And so he says, um, verse 18, who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be, end quote. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he promised he was able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abram believed God and God gave him righteousness. Friends, the gospel is offered freely to all but you must believe. There's good news. That separation and enmity between you and God, that separation has been bridged by the cross of Jesus Christ. We who were his enemies, we who were far off, we who were alienated, Uh, And under the wrath of God, we can be brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Abram believed God's promise of a progeny and a uh, a prosperity, and it was accredited to him for righteousness. So Paul's argument here is an argument for us as well. Faith in God's promise of a Messiah will provide imputed righteousness. Turn with me to um, another passage before we get to Galatians, because it's on the way. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, Paul talking to the Corinthian believers, but we give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. Um, Paul is basically saying, look, I'm preaching the gospel clearly and boldly in your presence. If you think I'm nuts, it's because I love you and I want the gospel to be, to be clear to you. Uh, verse uh, 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but him who died for them and rose again that's going to be the point that we're going to come to next in a moment active faith provides imputed righteousness but that imputed righteousness is not just for us to stand up here as bloated codfish right you know we're f- full fat and happy and satisfied believers and, you know, it's the, it's the picture of self-satisfaction, and we don't want to share our faith with anybody else, and we don't want to, we, we don't want to tell anybody else because, really, uh, oh, this is all about me. No, active faith receives the imputed righteousness of God and then compels us to tell others. We don't live for ourselves but we live for those who died and rose again for us. We live for Jesus. Therefore, verse 16, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, God imputes righteousness on those who believe in God's promised son, Jesus. It's a glorious exchange. When I, when I accept Christ as my savior, I give him my sin and he gives me a robe of righteousness. And now that righteousness isn't just for me to shine like lights in the world or to have eternal glory, to have a new name written on my thigh, given to me by the King of Kings, to have an inheritance in in the heavenlies, to live in the new Jerusalem with golden streets, 1500 cubic miles uh, wide, deep and tall. It's not just for me to worship at his throne, which out of it flows a river of life with the 12 trees and the 12 fruit of the tree of life for all of its seasons, for the healing of the nations. No, it is for me to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. I'm not here for myself. I'm not saved to, 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 to be a, a self-sustaining, self-righteous guru. I'm here for others. Active faith provides this imputed righteousness, but it requires me to share this with others. Um, Galatians. I told you we'd go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3 is similar. So just a couple pages after 2 Corinthians, you have Galatians. Chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, the law cannot save anyone. That's what he says. Can only condemn because we who are under the law can never fulfill it. We are sinners by birth and choice. One breach of the law condemns us forever and we break the law daily. Therefore, our righteousness must be attained in some other way than through law keeping. It must be through faith in God's promise to save us by his imputed righteousness. Since God cannot lie, then, uh, then uh, the law must be kept. Therefore... He kept it himself by sending Jesus to live a sinless life and die as our righteous substitute. Religion and religious activity, fervor, zeal, piety or otherwise can never save. Only faith in God's promises and promised substitute can save us eternally. When we look in uh, Hebrews, or excuse me, when we look in Galatians chapter three, we find this is clear. This is what he's talking about. The Galatians were foolish because they were thinking that they had to abandon the gospel of Jesus and go back to law-keeping. And so look what he says in verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham." And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed by believing Abraham. So what is the gospel? The good news that Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. How was uh, that gospel preached to Abraham by saying, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed? And the answer was, Abraham knew the promise of God that he was under condemnation as a son of Adam and that that condemnation was total and complete and that he could not save himself. He needed God to send a seed That would save him. And so God promised, I will send the seed through you, and that seed will provide blessing to all the nations. So in some sense, the gospel was concealed inside this promise to Abraham, I will bless all the nations through you. And thus, when we believe God through Jesus Christ, we become the spiritual children of Abraham or Abram. Active faith provides imputed righteousness. So let's go to the third point. Active faith obeys, resulting in protection in a hostile world. So go back. Um, there was one more. There's. You know what? I take that back. I need to. I need to turn. We need to go back to James. I, I apologize. Look at look at James two for a second. This one can can get misrepresented. So I wanna. I don't want to miss it because I told you there's three passages in the New Testament that reference this, James chapter two verses eighteen to twenty six. James is misrepresented often, especially by um, Luther and some of the reformers. James was teaching the same thing Paul was teaching, but James was applying it in a practical way. Paul was saying to the Galatians, look, law-keeping doesn't save you. Thus, you must believe in God's promise of Abraham by faith. James is saying the same thing. Law-keeping doesn't save you but guess what? Real faith shows itself in daily action, and then he gives some application like this. And so I'll read James 2, um, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abram our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, in the altar? Now, is he saying that that is a work that saved him? No, he's saying that he trusted God by faith, and we'll read that story in Genesis chapter 18 in the coming weeks. He trusted that God was able to even raise Isaac from the dead, his one and only son. Why? Because God promised him, I will bless all the nations of the earth through your heir, from your body. So when Abram offered isaac he was believing that god was even able to resurrect isaac from the dead so that was a work out of his faith it wasn't a work that made him have faith it was a work that came out of faith okay do you see that faith was working together with his works he says in verse 22 and by works faith was made perfect or complete that's what that word means and the scripture was fulfilled which says abram believed god and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that this man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, this is not an excuse for the Roman Catholic doctrine that faith plus works is what saves. In fact, this is the exact opposite of what James is arguing for. He's saying genuine saving faith produces works like sacrificing everything for God giving my all to God, trusting that God will fulfill his promises in spite of me. That's what James is saying. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In other words, he's basically saying, you can't live without your eternal soul inside of you. Your body is dead without your eternal soul. And so faith without action is also dead. That's not real saving faith. It's dead faith or dead works, right? That's what he's saying. Now, let's go to the third point back to Genesis, and this will be fast. Verses, Genesis 15, verses 9 to 16, we have this story of, of God then uh, explaining to Abraham what he's going to do, and God makes a covenant with him. And so we find that active faith obeys, resulting in protection in a hostile world. The point of this section of the story is to showcase that God sealed this promise based on his own character and not on Abram's. This means that he knew that Abram would never be good enough to keep the covenant. So God swore an oath upon himself that he would bless Abram and all his descendants based on his own gracious choice. God chose you... God chose me despite our sin and despite our failure, and He is able to keep you from your own sin and to present you before the throne of God faultless in His Son Jesus. That is something to praise God for. You see, active faith obeys, resulting in protection in a hostile world. Verses 9 to 16, Abram is told, Go take these animals. Uh, they're the large animals he cuts in half. This sounds really weird to us. It was actually. Uh, a a cultural custom in Abram's day. This was not something that he wouldn't have understood, nor was this something that the Israelites wouldn't have understood. We don't do this kind of thing today. We go into uh, rooms like, for example, when you buy a car after they, they, they bring in the closer and then they bring in the other closer and the other closer because they want you to buy the car and then they want you to buy the insurance on the car or the. Uh, the extra the extra warranty on the car and then they want you to buy the, the. mechanical warranty on the car, then they want you to buy the paint coverage on the car and so the closer the closer the closer the closer, what do you normally do you get 752 pages of, of printed paper where they killed 65 trees and you sign 432 times a contract. I'm exaggerating, using hyperbole, but you, doesn't it feel that way? You go to buy a car, it should take like 30 minutes, and it takes you three days, right? And 16 hours in the sweatshop with foreclosers, right? Putting the pressure on. And the point is, this was the idea of a covenant between God and Abram. Abram was providing animals. Why does he cut them in two and spread them out? Well, first of all, what happens when you cut an animal in half, it bleeds. What is the promise of the covenant? Blood must be shed. So when he sets these animals apart, blood is staining the path and the covenant is sealed with blood and the members of the covenant keepers walk through the blood and it's through the blood that Abram would have to pass through and it's through the blood that God Yahweh himself would pass through. Do you see uh, this? The children of Israel would have seen this illustration like, oh yeah, uh, we just exited Egypt and the 10th plague that God sent was the death of the firstborn. And in order for the death angel to pass over us, we had to have blood on our door and the blood dripped onto the floor. And every time we walked through our door for three days later, we were dragging blood in and out of the threshold. We had to walk through the covenant of blood. This is a covenant of blood, but notice the difference here. God doesn't swear this covenant on uh, with two parties, but with one. This Abram is not made to walk through the, the carcasses of these animals. God puts him to sleep and God walks through the carcasses of animals because he knows that Abram cannot keep this covenant without God doing it for him. This covenant of promise, this faith that results in progeny and prosperity is based on God's character and God alone. And it will protect Abram in the the midst of a hostile world. That's the point of the story. But there is some symbolism here. What does Abram have to do? He has to work hard before nightfall. There's a lot of carrion birds that want to eat the animal before this covenant can be enacted. And Abram is running around chasing chasing vultures away. Uh, I got to see a turkey vulture live in the desert um, a couple of years back when I was uh, walking through the desert. It was actually in Verado. Those things are huge. I don't know if you've ever seen a turkey vulture full size. They're terrifying. They're the, some of the ugliest things you'll ever see. Plus, their beaks look like they could eat your hand with one bite. Can you imagine chasing a bunch of these things away or whatever they were? Maybe, maybe it was a pterodactyl. I have no idea. Okay. Probably not, but maybe. Now the point here is You know, uh, these these carrion birds were seeking to destroy and to devour this sacrifice. I don't want to make too much of this or make this an allegorical message. That's not the point. But the point is, sometimes the circumstances of our lives, God promised, Abram followed through, God had not yet ratified that covenant, and God has to chase these carrion birds away. Sometimes our life circumstances are hard and difficult, Uh, And it's difficult to, um, we have to trust in God despite our circumstances, which produces God's protection in our lives that results in a perseverance into eternity. Here in the text, before God swore the oath, Abram had to spend his time actively protecting the sacrifice from the carrion birds. Furthermore, the promise of God's blessing didn't come without the truth of the suffering of Adam's descendants. Or, excuse me, Abram's descendants. This is why we were told, we told you last week that Abram understood this from Hebrews 11, that his inheritance was not simply an earthy one, but rather a heavenly one. Abram was promised descendants, but he didn't even have an heir yet. He didn't have a child. He had a guy born in his house named Eliezer that was his inheritor, and he's asking for God's promise. But he decides to obey God, and God decides to protect him. Here in the text, we find out that uh, God's protection doesn't happen right away. And he's told that his inheritors are going to suffer for four generations. We now know that was 440 years, 430 or so years in Egypt under great oppressors. I don't know about you, but the promise of Jesus' coming is really encouraging. But the first century apostles and prophets assumed that Jesus was coming in their lifetime. That was 2,000 years ago. And uh, every, every, um, every political cycle here in America, all the conservative um, Christians in America, you know, wonder if we're going to get the next president slash messiah to come and reset um, the great American culture and make, make our lives great again. And yet the reality is there's only one king that's going to come and make our lives great. And we look for that king to come. But even when King Jesus does come and resets the earth and partially versus the curse so that a child can play over a snake's nest and not be bitten and die, and a, a, a leopard can lay down or the predator can lay down next to the prey and not eat them, At the very end of this thousand year time of peace and prosperity with the perfect king and the perfect society, with no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more cancer, uh, no more food shortages, no world hunger, there's world peace, they're still going to rise up against God because the problem is not external, the problem is internal. Active faith obeys, resulting in protection in a hostile world. Abram understood that his inheritance was not simply an earthly one, but rather a heavenly one. And the final thing we want to see is active faith is produced by God's covenantal character, verses 17 to 21. So as we look at this, we find that God um, is the one who ratifies our covenant of faith. Here, God ratifies this covenant with Abram. God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to do what we could not do, to pay the ultimate price in full for our eternal redemption. Friends, when we trust in Christ, we receive full pardon and forgiveness that will never fail and never end. The end of this story shows the grace and mercy of God abundantly. Abram is one man who at this point has at least 318 trained servants and hundreds of animals. Although he is wealthy, he has no child or heir to his household. Yet he will become such a great nation that all of the land that 10 nations currently occupy will belong to his descendants. When you and I trust in God's promises, we receive the blessing of his covenantal character. I've already mentioned a bit of the new heaven and the new earth today, so I won't. Let me just conclude by saying, will you, like Abram, trust God and build your life's actions on his promises despite the obstacles set before you from within and and without your flesh and the hostile world? You see, faith in God's promises always leads to action from God's people. Listen, I don't know what burdens you brought today to this assembly, and I know you weren't expecting to spend until 10 after 12 listening to me preach twice. But whatever burden you came with today, God knows. God cares. And God sent his one and only son to conquer death for all time so that the burdens in this life begin to fade because we have an eternal life and an eternal hope. And we look for that eternal city whose builder and maker is the Lord's. I'll conclude by by reading um, this, and I've read it several times this week uh, with the Robinson family and otherwise. But just listen to the words of God's final revelation. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down Then he who sat in the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give the, of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly Unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Friends, we are confronted like Abram today with a choice. Will you believe God through his son Jesus and receive his imputed righteousness? Or will you reject Jesus? and continue to live in your natural state as a sinner rejected apart from god cowardly abominable under the wrath of god and receive eternal separation in a very real place called the lake of fire i don't know the divine mystery i don't understand how god's sovereign choice and election and his free offer of salvation to all men, clearly works. But I do know God wants you in his new heaven and his new earth. And it is being prepared right now. Will you believe God and receive his imputed righteousness? Or you, will you reject him and seal your eternal fate? That is the question today that only you can answer. Let's pray.